Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, a new Georgia election law and what can be done to halt and reverse the voter suppression runaway train is getting rid of the filibuster. What Democrats need uh, to stop the voter suppression laws as well as to move their agenda. And Joe Biden's next moves, getting cash into people's hands, impacting unwage and wage sectors. Are we seeing a fundamental shift in social welfare policy and his infrastructure plan? Also, attacks on the Asian American Pacific Islander communities, the historic context. And what the spa attacks have revealed about race, misogyny, and criminalization. And on the international front, the Alaska summit, U.S. versus China and Russia. Is this a fight the U.S. can win or is the horse already out of the gate? And of course, we will be talking about what some are calling the crisis at the border and others saying not so fast. This surge is seasonal. Our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp quickly signed into law a new set of voter restrictions while a black Georgia lawmaker knocked on his office door demanding to be let in. Democratic State Representative Park Cannon was arrested by Capitol Police. She was charged with felony obstruction of law enforcement, punishable by one to five years in prison. She was released late last night. Supporters rallied outside the jail while she was held inside, including Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, who said Cannon is one of his parishioners. Warnock said it's a sad day for Georgia. And what we have witnessed today is a desperate attempt to lock out and squeeze the people out of their own democracy. And in this effort, in this case, they're literally being locked down. The people are being locked down and locked out of their own democracy. Yes. But this effort to silence the voices of Georgians who stood up in a historic election in November and January will not stand. The new Georgia law imposes voter ID requirements for absentee voting and would limit the use of ballot drop boxes, as well as disqualify voters who cast ballots outside their precincts. It would bar volunteers from providing food or drink to people who sometimes have to wait in line for hours to vote. Kemp signed the bill into law two hours after final passage by lawmakers. President Biden called the Republican legislation in Georgia and similar measures elsewhere around the country un-American. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. 
deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. Biden made the comments at his first presidential press conference. More on that from Laura Rossbrow Tellum. President Joe Biden told reporters at his first formal press conference yesterday that he'll unveil details about a $3 trillion infrastructure plan in Pittsburgh next week. The next major initiative is to rebuild the infrastructure, both physical and technological infrastructure in this country. Notably, Biden emphasized this and not gun control as his next big priority. The president started by saying he now aims to get 200 million COVID-19 vaccine shots to people in his first 100 days. And he expects to run for re-election in 2024 with VP Kamala Harris. Much of the press conference was devoted to immigration and the situation at the southern border. Biden said his administration is opening a new military facility to house unaccompanied minors, which he hopes will improve the dire conditions thousands of young people are facing. He's also launching a program he says will quickly verify whether minors crossing are reuniting with family or not. While Biden is expelling the vast majority of adults crossing the border without documentation, he is not expelling unaccompanied immigrant children. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. An evenly divided Senate Judiciary Committee has advanced the nomination of civil rights leader Vanita Gupta to serve as the Justice Department's top official on civil rights. The vote was 11 to 11 with all Republicans opposed. Under Senate rules, the full Senate will take up her nomination. Jacob Blake Jr. has filed a federal lawsuit against the White Kenosha, Wisconsin police officer who shot him seven times in the back, leaving him permanently disabled. The shooting of Blake, who's African-American, was captured on bystander video. It came three months after a white Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for nearly nine minutes. The University of Southern California has agreed to an $852 million settlement with more than 700 women who accused the college's longtime campus gynecologist of sexual abuse. When combined with a $215 million settlement of a separate class action lawsuit, USC has agreed to pay out over $1 billion for claims against 74-year-old Dr. George Tyndall. He worked at the school for nearly 30 years. Tyndall himself faces 35 criminal counts of sexual misconduct between 2009 and 2016. He has pleaded not guilty. Dominion Voting Systems has filed a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The suit argues the cable news giant falsely claimed in an effort to boost its faltering ratings that the voting company rigged the 2020 election. The defamation lawsuit is the first filed against a media outlet by the company at the center of false claims spread by President Trump and his allies after Trump's election loss to Joe Biden. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our weekly roundtable is back, and we're going to uh, start off our discussion um, around the issues of voter suppression. That seems to be just a runaway train. Uh, we also will be talking about what some are calling a crisis at the border, uh, but others are saying, well, this is a se- seasonal surge. Uh, But first, what I'd like to do is welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. 
Laura is based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She also is a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member of the Los Angeles School Board, District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had served previously as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. And before being elected to City Council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. And he is also the author of the Dawning of the Apocalypse, the Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, uh, along with other many other books. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so one of the major victories of the civil rights movement um, was the passage of the Civil Rights Act back in 1965. It outlawed discriminatory voting practices based on race, religion, creed, sexuality, and more. But in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled by a five to four vote that a provision of the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional and gutted a key section, the heart really, of the law that protected marginalized voters. And in 2018, in a study, Pew Research found that within five years of the ruling, nearly a thousand polling places in predominantly black counties had been uh, closed and a spate of voter suppression laws were passed uh, across uh, many, several states, a majority of states actually. Now, uh, Donald Trump following the 2020 election uh, continues to this day to claim that the election was rigged and that he actually won based on no substantial evidence, right? And in Georgia, he even pressed the Secretary of State to find more votes for him and to make voting access harder in Georgia. And it seems now bending to pressure from Donald Trump and his base. On Thursday, March 25th, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law a GOP-sponsored overhaul of state elections. Uh, let us go to a clip now. Um, that's from CBS this morning um, on that. Uh, Joe Biden held his first press conference uh, yesterday where he covered a number of topics, voter suppression, immigration, and a lot more. Let's go to that clip now. Mr. Biden grew fiery yesterday when asked about Republican efforts in states like Georgia to restrict voting. It's sick. It's sick. Republicans in at least 43 states are pursuing changes they claim are necessary to protect election security. Democrats say the measures will make voting more difficult, especially for their base, minorities and young voters. Are you worried that if you don't manage to pass voting rights legislation, that your party is going to lose seats and possibly lose control of the House and the Senate 
in 2022. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do. Hours after he said that, in a closed-door ceremony, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed SB202, a voting law that critics have called voter suppression. Why does she have to step back? Outside Governor Kemp's office, Georgia state troopers arrested State Representative Park Cannon after she knocked on the office door asking for access. Are you serious? No, you are not. Represent. She's not under arrest. What is for what? Under arrest for what? People who were there to protest the voter law demanded to know why Cannon was being detained. In a statement, Georgia State Patrol said Cannon was repeatedly asked to stop knocking on the door and disturbing what was going on inside. They say she was warned she would be arrested if she did not stop. And all we ask is for her to be able to see them sign a bill that is signing our rights away. Cannon was charged with obstruction of law enforcement and preventing or disrupting general assembly sessions or other meetings of members. Senator Raphael Warnock, who is also a preacher and happens to be Cannon's pastor, was at the jail when she was released hours later. This is democracy in reverse. Rather than the people being able to choose their politicians, the politicians are trying to cherry pick their voters. As for the president's own political future, I asked him whether he plans to run for re-election in 2024. He said yes, that is his intention. And Tony, on another issue, gun control, interestingly, he declined to give any kind of timeline on his plans to introduce proposals. He said he is going one priority at a time, and the next priority up is infrastructure. All righty. And also at the press conference, um, Joe Biden uh, made some remarks to the pressure that he's feeling about what some are calling a crisis at the border with uh, the children, um, unaccompanied children uh, coming into the United States, while others are saying, indeed, advocates in the Rio Grande Valley, they're saying that it really is, the, the surge is seasonal. But let's hear what Joe Biden had to say on that front. Well, the president took questions for about an hour on bipartisanship, on voting rights, and on the record number of children currently sleeping in overcrowded Border Patrol facilities. But he made no apologies for changing some of President Trump's border policies. President Biden insisted it is the cooler winter weather, not his policies, causing a surge in border crossings. It's the time they can travel with the least likelihood of dying on the way because of the heat in the desert, number one. Number two, they're coming because of the circumstances in country. Some migrants have told CBS that they're coming because they believe President Biden will be more lenient. But more often, they say their motivation is the dangerous situation in their home country. The idea that I'm going to say, which I would never do, that if an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let them starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either except Trump. I'm not going to do it. 
All right. So, um, Laura Carlson, we'll start with you on on both counts. The immigration piece, of course, is an overlap um, with the international, um, you know, uh, section of it, but also because it is border, it's also national. So, your thoughts on both of those, the uh, on what's happening at the border, as well as voter suppression. Thanks, Margaret. You know, it's amazing to me from this vantage point, and I know it is to many people, that uh, the arguments against the, uh, the for the Voter Suppression Acts are now so openly anti-democratic, opportunistic, and racist. Uh, you gave a little bit of the history, and of course there has been a long history of voter suppression attempts in the country, very clearly targeted at certain populations. But I think that this is the first time that we have seen the Republican Party come out with such a blatant uh, presentation that what we are trying to do is suppress the right to vote of certain sectors so that we can win elections. The problem with that is that it doesn't seem to concern a huge part of the American populace. Um, Bernie Sanders said recently there's like 30, 40 percent of the population that has given up on democracy in the polarization that we've seen thanks to the Trump administration. And, of course, this false argument that there was voter fraud in the last election. At the hearings, we saw some of the major fraud promoters testifying, um, including Rokita of Indiana and others. And now uh, there are these 250 bills in 43 states that mimic what has happened, this outrageous bill that was passed in Georgia. I don't think it's a runaway train. I think it's a train that has been put very clearly on track to suppress voting, and particularly in certain populations, this is a concerted effort by the Republican Party to roll back the capacity of people to vote and for there to be a majority rule in the country. There's something very symbolic, I think, about Park Cannon, the Georgia state representative, um, being arrested for knocking on the door. You know, why should, as uh, she's a black woman, why should certain segments of the population in the year 2021 still have to knock on the door of democracy? They should already be inside. And what these laws are doing is that they are very specifically trying to keep people outside. And if they don't stay outside where they're supposed to be, they get arrested. You know, there's been uh, Ted Cruz falsely claimed that this would register millions of unauthorized migrants, whipping up again that racist image of, um, you know, brown people taking over the United States. And so we're seeing the typical tactics of the far right in these whereas the voting rights bill, which is quite comprehensive, you know, is just plain common sense. If you believe in democracy, stop prohibitive requirements, limit gerrymandering, bipartisan commissions to enfranchise former felons who have served their terms. Um, Biden is right to call these efforts sick, and it's, 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 it points to the need not just to confront this, which leads to the filibuster issue, which we'll talk about more, in the sense that there has to be some way around blocking the majority vote in the Senate. But it also points to the need for more civic education. Now, how can people agree to sacrifice democracy 
for false claims of fraud and and for some of this far right ideology that we're seeing um, that has become so strong during the past years. I want to move quickly to the border because, of course, it's a huge issue for us, one that I've followed personally for many, many years. And what's happening is it's an old playbook. It's something we've seen before, particularly in 2014. And that was when people remember there was the so-called unaccompanied minors crisis. Under the, Biden, under the Obama administration, um, and during that time, we did an investigation and discovered that this crisis was, in fact, whipped up by Breitbart with a very particular purpose. The purpose being we're going to show a surge, which is a dehumanizing term for, for refugees and asylum seekers and migrants who come to the border seeking safety, that there's a surge that somehow this feeds into a national security threat for the United States, that something happens, it has to be done, and it creates this wedge into people who believe in blocking it, people who believe in a more humanitarian approach. That's what we're seeing now. The, the Washington Post data is showing that, in fact, there's no surge, but this is a typical, um, typical seasonal variation that happens, and there's also a backlog of people trying to leave these desperate countries in order to come to the United States. So um, it's very, very important. I think what's striking is how quickly the Democrats, you know, re reverted to that national security logic despite having promised a different approach to immigration. Yes, and, and Jackie Goldberg, on, on both of those accounts, I mean, with the, uh, the spate of voter suppression laws uh, going on, of course, Republicans were very alarmed with what happened in Georgia. Um, not only um, Joe Biden winning Georgia, but then the election of uh, two uh, senators, Democratic uh, senators, one black, one of Jewish descent. And it looks as though there's possible that the Supreme Court may even um, gut the Civil Rights Act even further. Uh, the Democrats are trying to do something about it. Um, House uh, Resolution 1 uh, was passed um, that they're hoping would really undo the damage uh, done by the Supreme Court and all of these uh, spate of voter suppression laws. There is the issue, though, of the filibuster and of Joe Manchin in, in particular. And Jackie, I wondered if you wanted to comment on that. You might want to comment also on the what some are calling the new crisis at the border, Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think the new crisis, at, I'll start at the last and go to the front. The new crisis at the border largely was created by Fox News and Stephen Miller. Fox News started the day after the election. Its first story calling it a border crisis was January 21st. I have to admit I watched them so that I know what they're talking about. But that was January 21st. The number of people crossing is not much different than it was two years ago. And this whole business is really just an attack because they know that the right-wing base is so anti-immigration that, you know, it will believe anything. But, you know, <clears throat> Laura Ingram had one primetime show with experts confirming that this was a crisis. Stephen Miller went on with his, uh, you know, notion that, oh, my God, he was, remember, he was the guy that said Antifa was in, in, in charge of everything uh, that went bad in the uh, entire world. Well, he, uh, he's done that as well. So, I, you know, the whole notion of voter suppression, we know where it started. We started, it started when slavery ended, 
and with the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments guaranteeing voting rights and civil rights and all kinds of rights, they began finding ways to subterfuge that. And until we can get enough people appointed to the courts, you see, because here's the reality. The reality is, is that the white dominance of the entire political culture of the United States will end soon. And everyone knows it will end soon, <clears throat> because the population change will just guarantee that it will end soon. So what does the white dominant male culture, political culture, want to do? It doesn't want to reach out to this new group of voters and say, well, let's find some common ground. It says, no, new group of voters, you can't vote because you will not do what we want you to do. And this is not new, and it's long history, and it is a complete problem because under their rule, what the Republicans have decided to do is to take over the courts. Why take over the courts? Because they don't care what, what legislatures will pass laws as long as they have courts who say, oh, you can't do that. You can't restrict anything. You, 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 can't, you, you can't get rid of restrictions like these. That, they're perfectly legal. And that's really the whole game. The whole game is to hold on to power without having to change what your, what your politics are. The Republicans now are literally on a, on a, on a huge movement to oppose, in, in Washington that is, to oppose the public's good and to oppose it publicly and to oppose it without shame. So I think that this is a, 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 a very important moment. As to, uh, I forgot your other questions. Let, let, let's let uh, my colleague go in and I'll come All righty. Yeah, you could, you could always come back to that, uh, Jackie Goldberg. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, a lot is resting in terms of the voter suppression uh, bill. I mean, the, the bill that passed in Georgia, very alarming. You know, even you can't distribute water to, you know, to people who are waiting long lines. And we know very well who's being targeted on it because with, uh, especially with with all the closure of polling places, you have very, very long lines, particularly in uh, black communities. But you have Arizona, Michigan, and Florida uh, now ready to, you know, make similar uh, a similar move as Georgia did. You might want to comment on that. And also taking us into the, uh, the issue of uh, Joe Biden and his next moves, because he did the American Rescue Plan that was very popular. He's now talking about um, an infrastructure plan, which would cost more than the American uh, Rescue Plan. And also he's appointed a former Democratic mayor of Massachusetts, um, who is from the Boston Building Trade Council, um, Walsh, uh, to be uh, Marty Walsh, to be his labor secretary. And meanwhile, there's a whole row going on with Amazon uh, workers uh, who are trying to unionize. So, uh, Ger Dr. Horn, just your thoughts on all of this. Well, first of all, a data point in this morning's Financial Times, there's an article about how major corporations that had pledged to curtail donations to the GOP in light of the January 6th insurrection have resumed their massive donations to the GOP, and that includes Facebook, Microsoft, J.P. Morgan Chase, Anheuser-Busch, T-Mobile, etc. And certainly it seems to me some sort of boycott of these corporations for their hypocrisy and complicity with voter suppression needs to be on the agenda. Uh, with regard to Marty Walsh, I can't say that his appointment 
as Labor Secretary is reassuring, his record in Boston as mayor was hardly ideal. Boston has a justifiable reputation for being a citadel of racism and white supremacy, as exemplified by the school desegregation crisis of the 1970s when black kids were stoned by some of Marty Walsh's neighbors. And, of course, his record as mayor with regard to handing out contracts, city contracts, to minority vendors and suppliers was appalling. And so we're going to have to keep a close eye upon him as labor secretary. And I think that there is a connective thread with regard to many of these issues that we're discussing, be it the crisis at the border, be it the AAPI hate crimes, be it the crisis with the People's Republic of China. I mean, basically, we need to recognize that we're undergoing what is an overarching crisis, which is a crisis of white supremacy, as Jackie Goldberg was intimating. And it's going to be very problematic to deal with. But I do think that what we should not do is echo the words of Mr. Biden, who said that what's happening with regard to voting is, quote, un-American, unquote, whatever that means. Now, I understand why, as president, he might take that position, just like Barack Obama would say in the similar circumstance that this is not who we are. But I'm not sure why someone who is not president should echo that kind of propaganda and instead face up to the country uh, that we actually are. I think that what we can do, in addition, is try to force domestic issues into the global conversation. Uh, that's what happened at the Alaska summit when the Chinese delegation raised the question of Black Lives Matter and raised the question of what they call, quote, slaughtering, unquote, of black people. We need to raise these questions at the Human Rights Council in Geneva because certainly it's going to be a very rocky road ahead in light of the numbers. And certainly I think we also need a, a bit of self-criticism as well. Uh, I, I think if I can breach the wall between domestic and foreign for a moment, it's interesting that the Chinese, let's say the People's Republic of China, uh, has as a principle not interference in the eternal affairs of sovereign states. However, in the run-up to this debate and affirmative action in the state of California nationally, the China Daily, headquartered in China, was an opponent of affirmative action, believe it or not, even though supposedly they don't get involved in the internal affairs of sovereign states. And I'm afraid to say that some certain Asian American groupings took a similar position and do south from you, uh, Margaret, at Orange County. You have two uh, Asian American Republican congresswomen, Young Kim and Michelle Steele, who are trying on the one hand to align with the party of whiteness, speaking of the Republican Party, and on the other hand, then coming to the anti-racist forces spearheaded by the black community and seeking our support after they oppose affirmative action. You can't run with the hares and hunt with the hounds. Right. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And later in the hour, we are going to be going more into that summit uh, that happened in Alaska and U.S.-China-Russia relations. Um, but what we're going to do now is we are going to take our station break. Uh, but Dr. Horn, just on your call for a boycott, I mean, uh, the black community, people in Atlanta are calling for a boycott of Coca-Cola uh, because they were very wishy-washy on the uh, voter suppression. 
Russian with a statement they issued. They're also trying to put some uh, pressure on Delta. That's also their headquarters, Delta Airlines, their headquarters um, in, uh, in Georgia. So we'll see how all of that bears out. We'll take a station break. When we return, we'll be getting into the attacks on Asian American and Pacific Islander people, uh, the history of relations uh, between uh, that community and other communities of color. And also we'll be talking, getting into the international front, particularly the US, uh, China, and Russia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the morning, when I the classic by Sweet Honey and the Rock in the morning uh, when I rise. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you, it is our weekly roundtable. Check us out on Facebook. If you're a member of Facebook, just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners. Uh, let's see. In uh, Southern Illinois, our SoundCloud listeners in Southern Illinois and internationally, let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners throughout the Asia Pacific region. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn. Now, last year, when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, Donald Trump attempted to link the deadly virus with the people of China. He frequently referred to it as the China virus and made other racist remarks about the disease, making it seem somehow as though people of Asian descent are responsible for it. Now, a year later, even though Trump is no longer in the White House, his words have had tremendous uh, consequences. New Data has revealed that over the past year, the number of hate crimes, hate incidences against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders is greater than previously reported. The data released by Stop AAPI Hate on Tuesday, March 16th, revealed nearly 3,800 incidences were reported over the course of roughly a year during the pandemic, uh, much higher than the uh, previous uh, year. And uh, then, of course, uh, what happened? And by the way, the majority of those are against women. 68% of those attacks against women uh, versus 29% against men. And then on March 16th, a series of mass shootings occurred at three spas or massage parlors in the metropolitan area of Atlanta, uh, Georgia. In the U.S., eight people killed, six of whom were Asian women and uh, one other person was wounded. Let us uh, go now um, to a clip from USA Today about the APPI attacks. You feel numb because there's just been so much going on within our community all over, not just the US, but even the world. And um, it's kind of morbid, but you're thinking it was just a matter of time for it to happen down the street. From you. Being Asian American, whether or not the 
the attack was directed towards you. Uh, it's one of those things where if somebody in your community is affected, uh, you feel the, the blunt of that too. The normalization of the hypersexualization of Asian American women or Asian women in general that's rooted in imperialism and colonialism really helps to facilitate and creates a, a breeding ground for increased sexualized violence against Asian Women. The murderer pretty much said that it was because of his sex addiction and it wasn't racially fueled, but there's obviously a connection and they're not mutually exclusive. Did my mom is a Korean American woman who was who had a small business and so she's in that arena and a lot of my friends' parents are in that situation too. So for me it's more of the the parents' generation and our families that I'm really thinking about in this situation. I certainly think that um, it's a moment where people are really coming together. I mean, that, that's been my experience today is that people are coming together to respond. I am Korean, but I didn't need to know that for me to care. I didn't need to know that for me to feel hurt and pain as if it was a family member of mine or a friend because as as Asian Americans or as Asians as, as minorities we understand the perspective that is put upon us when white supremacy is the framework of how everything's built so it's it's a shared trauma and it's a shared burden Alrighty, and so actually we're going to start with you here, Dr. Gerald Horn, because just putting this it somewhat in historic context, but uh, certainly uh, after the spate of attacks on March uh, 21st, there was a, a huge demonstration, more than a thousand people, it's, it's reported, uh, called Black and Asian uh, Solidarity, and also uh, uh, they were chanting Black Lives Matter, Asian Lives Matter, and, and uh, this is what community looks like and also after the the attacks in Atlanta the official Black Lives Matter account issued a statement about eradicating uh, white supremacy uh, uh, and saying Asian Americans like every other marginalized racial group deserves to be freed from violence and intimidation and fear and then um, people are what's bubbling up is a, a class divide it seems in the AAPI community because there's the view of the, the kind of model community and then there's a view of impoverished people of Asian descent and then the history of some of the, the, the black Asian solidarity um, with their support for the Black Panther Party um, figures like Grace Lee Boggs and, and Yuri uh, Kochiyama um, who was close um, Yuri was close to uh, Malcolm X for example so so um, your thoughts and, and your take. One other thing too, Dr. Horn, to, to mention here is that there seems this is bleeding somewhat into U.S. foreign policy in relation to Asia, the U.S. trying to establish itself in, in Asia. But um, people are saying that the targeting of Asians and Asian Americans um, doesn't bode well for uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, trying to uh, the influence they're trying to have in the Asia Pacific region. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, your last point is particularly relevant 
because I'm afraid to say that when tensions rise with Asian powers globally, Asian Americans in the United States suffer. We need only look at the tensions between Tokyo and Washington uh, during the 1940s that culminated with the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans and the unleashing of atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in August 1945. Uh, certainly, I think it's fair to say that with regard to the trajectory of U.S. imperialism, it had its introduction on the international stage in the late 1890s with the taking over of the Philippines, the penultimate Pacific Islander nation, and at the same time, you saw a bitter and bloody war against the Filipinos at that same time. That did not bode well for Asian Pacific Islanders in the United States of America. And in fact, just before that particular conflict, you had the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s, which particularly targeted for banning from these shores people of Chinese ancestry. And, as you also suggested, there has been a long and glorious history of solidarity uh, between black people and Asian Americans. Uh, recall the black objections to the internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s. Look at the struggle over ethnic studies in the 1960s and early 1970s at San Francisco State University, University of California at Berkeley, etc. However, today's challenge is particularly daunting. Uh, because right now, if I can, I'm allowed to say so, I mean, there are drums of war that are beating with regard to a conflict uh, with China. Uh, you need only look at the Washington Examiner, this conservative publication in, in D.C., which has been publishing a series on the prospects of war with China. Uh, James DeVritas, a former leading U.S. admiral, has written a novel about a war with China, laying out a battle plan and scenario in alleged fictional terms. And this is very unfortunate, to put it mildly, but I think that there are those in Washington who feel that if the United States cannot use its ultimate advantage it's right now, which is a military advantage, then China is basically destined to be the leading power globally, uh, which has enormous consequences for this 500-year history of white supremacy. Right. Thank you. And uh, going to you next, actually, Jackie Goldberg, um, the Washington Post has an article about Asian Americans uh, really trying to make their political power felt in Washington, D.C., and in particular, uh, Senator uh, Duckworth out of Illinois, um, Senator um, Hirono out of Hawaii, have been very upset with the fact that there has not been a cabinet-level position in the Biden administration, and, um, you know, had kind of made some threats of some things they would not do and apparently have backed down a little bit about that. And, and one of the things that Tammy Duckworth said, quote, um, about, um, you know, the lack of representation, she said, that is not something you would say to the Black Caucus. Well, you have Kamala. We're not going to put any more African-Americans in the cabinet because you have Ka Kamala. So why do you say that to the Asian-American Pacific um, Islander community. So having been in government yourself, uh, Jackie Goldberg, I thought you might want to uh, comment on that. And, and just generally, you know, Southern California, of course, a huge uh, AAPI community. Jackie well, Goldberg. 
Of course, the whole the whole uh, Southern California is still dealing with the uh, the losses that happened in the '40s when uh, all those folks were taken out of their homes and moved to camps for no reason at all, uh, none whatsoever. I mean, we did have a, a a German sub off the coast of California, but nobody rounded up the Germans. Not that I wanted them to, but nobody did. And uh, but uh, there was never any uh, any uh, potential attack uh, on the, on California's coast from Japan ever, and at least none ever recorded. And so yet the Asian Pacific Island people, uh, that is Japanese Americans, were rounded up, lost their property, lost their homes, lost their farms, lost their livelihoods, and were simply gone. And and it was very personal in my family because my mother was teaching at an elementary school at the time. Uh, in the Japanese-American community at the time of Gardena, a part of the uh, county of Los Angeles, a part of the school district. And she saw all of her children disappear. They just were gone from school. So this this was dramatic. And then there was the whole fight over Tule Lake and the no-nos. And so what the government did was to put questions in that said that asked about their loyalty because they they finally got nervous that they couldn't hold people forever without any charges. So they tried to paint Japanese Americans as disloyal by asking them loyalty questions. Would you would you would you fight in the army? This this the this loss this this uh, devastation in California has continues to uh, to this day. But it is also a big part of the Japanese American community's connection to not only African Americans but to immigrants, because a lot of folks that were in Tule Lake were deported after because they were German they were Japanese citizens and had no road to American citizenship and they were deported as enemy aliens uh several hundreds of them I mean 2000 of them actually so what we're talking about is a long history of saying that these are other that these are not us that we called them the model minority but that was just another way of discriminating against them there were quotas on admissions to universities in this state uh, against having, quote, too many Asian Pacific Island students in our public universities, which we've gotten rid of, but they were passed. We've had opportunities in this state to change lots of things for Asian Pacific Island people, but we haven't done much about it. Now, one thing I will say that is changing, part of what happened, at least in the Japanese-American community, which is the one I know the most about here in Southern California, they stopped reporting crimes against them because they thought it would draw attention to them, and when they got attention to them, there was more racism against them. So I think that has changed, and I think that's a good change. But we are a long, long way from where we need to be with understanding that there has been continuous racist attacks against people of Asian and Pacific uh, Pacific Island background, and the United States has been part and parcel of it. When the uh, Filipinos were uh, <clears throat> our guides in in uh, the war in the Pacific and World War II, promises were made to them about what would happen to them as a result of them risking and losing their lives in great numbers. Those promises have not been kept. So we have a long way to go before we can say that we have dealt with the racism and the discrimination against Asian Pacific Islanders. 
Yes, thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And uh, Laura Carlson, um, focusing a bit on the the spa attacks that happened in Georgia and, you know, the excuse that the killer, a 21-year-old white man, gave that, uh, well, it was because of his sexual addiction (laughs) that is the the reason that he did it and and now apparently is putting in a a plea, an insanity uh, plea. Uh, One could well imagine if he were another race, like uh, black or or um, Brown, if, if this, you know, would be propped up so much. But there's also a big debate about whether or not this was a hate crime. Uh, clearly, misogyny involved. I mean, six of the women killed. Uh, racism uh, involved. But also this kind of racialized sexuality, because whether or not the women who were killed um, worked, uh, you know, as uh, sex workers, and there's absolutely nothing to indicate that. But what sex work uh, Asian rights organizations are saying is that whether they were or not, they were feeling the brunt of the criminalization uh, against uh, sex workers and the violent sex workers face. Laura Carlson, your thoughts? It requires a very deep analysis, and it's such a disturbing and tragic crime. And there have been some very thoughtful articles that have come out since then. Um, one of the things that I think has been interesting and a little bit disturbing as well is that there tend to be discussions that, about whether or not he killed these people because they were women and who worked at these spas or because they were Asian, which indicates that we still haven't really reached a level in which we can contemplate the intersectionality that we need to understand When we're looking at these kinds of crimes and we're looking at these expressions of hatred and expressions of of deep, deep contradictions and problems within U.S. culture, Uh, many of the statements that you presented at the beginning emphasize that this increase in sexualized violence, which does relate to both the history that Jackie and Dr. Horn uh, talked about and to uh, what's been happening within U.S. society under the Trump administration and with the statements about the Chinese virus and everything. They do relate directly to that, and they automatically make that connection between the misogyny, uh, the mis- misogyny and between the racist character of, of these attacks. There's also a long history, when we talk about the history of people in the United States, of the culture itself, depositing its ills in the other. In that sense, expressing these deep contradictions by converting them into hatred and into attacks on the others, which is what happened in this case in terms of the sexual repression and guilt and cycles of, 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 um, of self-hatred, too, that this person apparently, apparently felt but that was directly tied not just to an individual psychology, but to, and this is the the point that I wanted to introduce here, to Christian fundamentalism. Um, Within white supremacy, we know that Christian fundamentalism is one of the primary components, is one of the factors that most related to Donald Trump's uh, winning the presidency in the Electoral College in the first election. And so there have been a number of, of very thoughtful interpretations of what the Christian fundamentalist aspect has to do with that one in particular by Jude Levine in The Intercept and by Chris Hedges in Salon. And so they're talking about this this strain of same sex, this pathology and sin 
um, and then how that got, gets expressed also in supposedly saving sex workers and the, the, under the guise of being against trafficking, although they know, for example, in this case, that there were no miners working in the place, in the particular spa, and that most of the time this is part of criminalizing both women in, in certain jobs and the whole, the, this, this whole industry yeah. that exists. This hatred for people of other ethnicities and faith and for women of color, you know, is coming directly out of that tradition. One of the things also that we learn from this is they're talking about, of course, now putting him in prison. He's going to try for an insanity, an insanity defense. But how can you call it insanity when it's just an expression, an extreme expression, really, of what exists deeply within U.S. culture? And he knew, he knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. If he yeah. goes to prison, and these authors pointed this out, he will be um, locked up, what Levine said, is locked up in a violent, racist institution with nothing but homophobic, misogynist, and radically sectarian religion for sucker. And that's the situation because these fundamentalisms are actually growing within the prison system. So we also see how this links to, uh, to incarceration and to this punishment approach to these contradictions and right. problems that exist in culture. Okay, thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. Uh, we are quickly now going to move on to the international front, and uh, likely, Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, that will be a segment we'll need to hear from you. But there's a very, very juicy exchange, as, as how I would uh, describe it, uh, that happened at this Alaska summit between now two major world powers, uh, China and the United States. Let's hear that, and, and Dr. Horn, we'll bring you in to react to that and also bring Russia into this discussion. Let's go to that clip. Our administration uh, is committed to leading with diplomacy, to advance the interests of the United States, and to strengthen the rules-based international order. That system is not an abstraction. It helps countries resolve differences peacefully, uh, coordinate multilateral efforts effectively, and participate in global commerce with the assurance that everyone is following the same rules. The alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right and winners take all. And that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. Uh, today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global, so that China can better understand our administration's intentions and approach. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation uh, to raise these issues uh, here today. China is firmly opposed to U.S. interference in China's internal affairs. We have expressed our staunch opposition to such interference, and we will take firm actions in response. On human rights, we hope that the United States will do better on human rights. China has made steady progress 
in human rights. And the fact is that there are many problems within the United States regarding human rights, which is admitted by the US itself as well. The United States has also said that countries can't rely on force in today's world to resolve the challenges we face. And it is a failure to use various means to topple the so-called authoritarian states. And the challenges facing the United States in human rights are deep-seated. They did not just emerge over the past four years, such as Black Lives Matter. It did not come up only recently. So we do hope that for our two countries, it's important that we manage our respective affairs well, instead of deflecting the blame on somebody else in this world. Well, Dr. Horn, well, there was China calling out the United States on uh, human rights abuses. Just your uh, thoughts on this clash. And, um, of course, Blinken went on to say, well, you know, the United States, we're not perfect and we're working towards this democracy, yada, 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 right? So just your reaction uh, to this, because things are ramping up of the United States versus um, China and also uh, Russia. And I'm um, totally unfair, Dr. Horn, you have like about a minute and a half or perhaps two minutes. Well, first of all, the black organizations and leaders are reluctant to capitalize upon this Chinese intervention because they recall what happened to Paul Robeson in 1990 when he brought the United States before the United Nations on charges of genocide against black people. He was persecuted and hounded relentlessly. But you are correct to suggest that the tensions are heating up. After this Alaska summit, Secretary of State Blinken headed to Brussels to round up a posse uh, in Europe to go after China, where Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, headed to uh, Beijing. If I would recommend that listeners uh, uh, check out the report by this conservative think tank, the Atlantic Council, which uh, issued a, a manifesto with regard to China. And two of the points that they stressed was that, number one, that the United States focused relentlessly on President Xi Jinping. And you saw that with Mr. Biden at the press conference yesterday when he said he didn't have a democratic bone in his body, speaking of Xi, and earlier called him a thug. And then the second point was that the United States should change policy towards Russia, that it should try to woo Russia away from China. But I don't really see that happening because there's so much animosity towards Russia across the U.S. political spectrum, left, right, and center, particularly in light of all of the allegations concerning uh, Putin's help to Trump in 2016 and 2020. And, of course, uh, Mr. Biden, when he called Mr. Putin a, quote, killer, unquote, did not necessarily advance that Atlantic Council strategy. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, to be continued, you know, got to keep an eye on, on the hawks in the Biden administration. So we'll see how all of that goes. But I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. Um, uh, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you. A very fascinating uh, roundtable. You all are just amazing. Um, we are out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Uh, Romero Funes, our uh, assistant producer, is back. We want to thank Kiana. Wilms uh, for her help while Romero was away. Our audio engineer today, Gary Baca. And please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The philosophy which old one race superior and another. 
and see you.